Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. Hi, I'm Olivia Lang. I'm a writer and critic, and my latest book is Funny Weather, Art in an Emergency. From David's Werner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. Because the subjects I write about are so dark and are so painful, it has always felt from the beginning like it's almost an ethical responsibility to, when I'm using artists to interrogate those subjects, at least use people whose work I genuinely love. Often the people that I'm writing about haven't had their dues. They've been outside of the sort of gallery system and... Again, it's felt like I've wanted to introduce them to a larger culture rather than savage figures who are already lauded in the larger culture. I'm Lucas Werner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This week, we're talking to the writer Olivia Lang. Olivia is an acclaimed cultural critic whose approach to both art criticism and life is unconventional and somewhat extraordinary. She's written a book about alcoholism and artistry by examining the lives of six writers infamous for their drinking. She's written a book about loneliness in the social media age through her own lived experience and her experience of the work of Andy Warhol and Edward Hopper, among others. And her latest book, Funny Weather, Art in an Emergency, a collection of essays published earlier this year, examines the more painful parts of life through the work and biographies of artists like Agnes Martin, David Hockney, and Wolfgang Tillmans. It's an emotionally resonant, smart, and powerful book, a way of writing about art that feels exactly right for these times. So, Olivia, I thought the structure of the book, Funny Weather, could really help structure this conversation. You know, your book begins with artists' lives. And one of the questions that I think is is very pressing for art writers today is the question of biography and criticism. Um, something that was, of course, totally frowned upon for a long time, but increasingly feels like an incredibly important mode uh, for accessing critical insights that might otherwise be obscured. Maybe you begin to talk a little bit about that part of your of your practice, how biography fits not only into the artist's lives, of course, but into, into your approach to criticism in general. That is a very good question. I mean, biography is really my working method in, in these essays. We know why it's produced. I want to know the conditions out of which it's produced. And in Funny Weather, those essays, people like Hockney, people like Agnes Martin, the conditions that they're coming from are so vital for understanding where their work goes, even though their work might seem very far from any sort of biographical material, particularly Agnes Martin, who is the one who goes as far as you can possibly go from, from anything that seems sort of messily entangled with the life. And yet her abstract works are very much related to the life she lives. So to me, it almost feels in one element like a kind of detective story. 
and in another just a, a very rich way of getting getting at the essence of what somebody's trying to do you know the role of biography becoming more more important or acceptable in criticism is you know it's a narrative tool or a prose tool to bring someone in uh, to a story or get someone excited but of course it seems to me that it suggests something else about how art is being considered more broadly in culture if if you've got a criticism that's dominant that basically says biography is not is not important then the tendency to kind of fall into a more you know academic niche is is probably higher and if you've got and it also feels like people are looking for something else in art right maybe they're actually looking for the big answers i think there's also you know there are good reasons why people worry about bringing biography too much into it if you think of somebody like sylvia plath or jackson pollock say where, where an artist's life has become almost overshadowed by a schlocky biographical version of the life, that sort of cult image of the artist, the tortured artist, the tormented artist, there, there was a real desire to move away from that and to move on to the sort of purer ground of the work itself, to take it away from the, the sort of tabloid version of the life story. And I think now we're seeing a kind of what happens if we go back, but maybe do it in a different way? What happens if we go back and think about what the artist themselves is this is what I'm trying to do anyway, what the artists themselves are trying to do, rather than just can we make a sort of romantic or exciting story out of their life, which personally I'm not massively thrilled by. No, that's I think that's right. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that return to biography in a more nuanced form feels like exactly what's happening. Um, and it feels exciting to me. It feels like it's a way of cracking open the painting in a, in a sort of to find new information that's that should be the goal really are you finding new information from the artwork if yes then continue and if no then maybe desist right and 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 it also feels like a way of pursuing what i feel is sort of in the background of so much of of what everyone is concerned about when they look at art but th this question of sincerity or meaningfulness or the work having uh touch points which are let's call them not exclusively formal or art historical but somehow mm -hmm bridge into human meaning, uh, mm. you know, or human struggles, which are obviously the, the, the themes, as you said, that drive your book. And, and I, I wonder if, if, if you think about, let's call it our generation of, of art viewers and, and your readers, do you feel that, that kind of press to locate, um, again, authenticity is such a loaded word, but I guess what I mean there is the people who are trying to actually create meaning as opposed to kind of spin their wheels uh, in, in yes. a set of rules. Yeah. Yeah, but also, I mean, as you're as you're sort of setting that out very nicely, there are words there like sincerity that make my skin crawl. Of I mean, course. must must we look for the sincere and the authentic, and what does that exclude? And I think you can be interested in a kind of authenticity at the same time as being. You know, I say in the book in the introduction, I'm not just interested in art that's trying to be beautiful or that's trying to be uplifting. And I think we can fetishize sincerity and authenticity in this quite gross way. Um. But at the same time, stripping art back from the kind of art speak that I think has, has contaminated it and has served to make a great space between the viewer and the artwork, and indeed the artist and the artwork, moving into that territory it involves a kind of re-embodying that I think is a dangerous work, but also is a necessary work. Putting those connections back in feels very important to me. And maybe those words, it's so hard to find the right word for that 
that kind of thing, but maybe a, a word like commitment or commitment to a practice or commitment is is more is more what what I'm you know what I think both of us are circling around. I don't you know the inherited meanings of of sincerity certainly are are I think antithetical to much of what's interesting in art certainly today, um, and 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 eliminate or at least obscure the subversive elements. But this idea, but of, a depth so, of practice, I think. Yeah, exactly. Depth, depth is a word right. I'm comfortable with. Yeah, depth or richness or or you know th- mm. this idea that that is that it's not there's there's not some surface play but there's an attempt to kind of mine or plumb oneself and other people um, for things that may be uncomfortable but are, are nonetheless totally necessary to explore. And I think people you know in this funny age of screens that we're inhabiting, I think people do feel a real pull towards those artists and those kind of lives. And even if, again, they can be kind of fetishized with the, you know, the sort of Louise Bourgeois in her studio picture that crops up on Instagram, that kind of thing that feels like it's sort of longing for kind of depth. And at the same time, it is in itself very superficial. But I think behind that, there's a real longing. There is something about wanting to know how people make a different kind of life, how people make a life that is dedicated year after year, decade after decade in making art. That's an extraordinary thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying is, is, is also tied to this as, as we are so aggressively marketed to unbeknownst to us through all these screens. Of course, even if we're accepting that world, I think there's always a, 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 another voice that's looking for something slightly different. Yeah. And, and, the, and the artists often, often provide that. Yeah, I would agree with that. How did your interest in art develop? And I guess the question there is vis-a-vis your interest in these other topics, whether it's loneliness or alcoholism. I mean, how did that, you have a kind of eccentric educational background uh, or, se- or, or <laughs> self-educational edu- se- <laughs> background, I should say, or autodidactic background, really. And, and I'm curious. True autodidact. <laughs> I, you know, yeah, true autodidact. I'm curious. I mean, you say at one point in the book that you turned down a place at Cambridge to go basically to a school where you'd be able to protest more or be part of the scene. And then dropped out of, of that school. And then dropped out of that school, exactly. And then really went into the wild, <laughs> as you as you beautifully describe, in feral. Um, I think art and literature were always very core to me as a as a child and as a teenager. Um, and yeah, I turned down a place at Cambridge to read English, um, went to Sussex University, which had a, at the time a kind of extraordinary education system that was much more broad. So it was much more a sort of... I suppose this is more common in America than in England, but like a liberal arts degree rather than a single subject, um, which was very exciting. But I was at the time very politically minded and I dropped out to live on protests. And then when I did resurface into the (laughs) ordinary world from my treetop life, um, I trained as a medical herbalist, which was basically a medicine degree. So that was five years plus a few years of practicing. Um, There was really about the life of the body, the the sort of bodily existence of of humans and the kind of things, the kind of burdens people carry in their bodies, a lot of listening. Um, And at the end of that period, when I was in my 30s, when I was around 30, I decided to train as a journalist and um, almost immediately and quite miraculously got hired at The Observer as their deputy literary editor. So I sort of almost leapfrogged into really the life that I probably would have had if I'd gone to Cambridge like I was supposed to in the first place. Um, Writing about literature, writing about books. um, And that was sort of the route I took for my first two books as well, To the River and The Trip to Echo Spring, were both 
the first is an investigation really into time and memory, but particularly about Virginia Woolf. Um, and the second is about alcoholism by way of six great American male writers. Um, and that book made me feel almost seasick about writing about writing. It was a very uncanny experience of writing a book about people who were professional liars, fabulists, making up stories, avoiding truth, making up fictional versions of lies they were telling in their daily lives. This is where I got very interested in the sort of strange territory between the life and the artwork. And at the end of that, I didn't want to write about books again. I wanted to write about some something more physical and an object-based art world. And when I started to write The Lonely City, the experience of loneliness anyway is so visual. It's so much related to the Edward Hopper painting. And so I sort of assembled this cast of artists, which includes Andy Warhol, Henry Darger, David Wanarevich. Um, and that felt like I'd finally reached a sort of home territory or a home language that writing about visual art made more sense to me than anything I'd done before. So it sort of continued <laughs> from there. There's a lot of happenstance in my life, I think. But you said you ended up where you might have ended up had you taken that more traditional path, as it were. Um, meaning gone to kind of reading English and, and that there's a chance you would have ended up, let's say, in a similar life path to the one you found yourself on, let's say, 10 years ten years afterward. And yet, I think as a very different person, as a person who'd had a totally different set of life experiences. And, you know, I, I worked alongside lots of people who'd gone straight down that Oxbridge route and um, nothing against it, but it's it's very narrow. And it means that your range of references are very narrow. It means that your sense of political experience is very narrow. And mine isn't. It's been very broad. Um, so you say something... Um that I really, really enjoyed, you know, where you, you talk about fighting brutality with uh, this word hospitality is a word that you use. But the question is, how do you decide what to write about? And is it a decision to throw your mental energy behind the things that you feel passionately about in the positive, as opposed to being critical, if that makes sense? Yes, it does make sense. I mean, I have written critical essays in the past and I didn't want to include them in this book because it had a particular kind of tone but actually I think it, it's not my bag I I do like reading that kind of waspish or more um savage criticism like my favorite critic is Gary Indiana who I think is remarkable and has completely the opposite tone to me but for myself I think because the subjects I write about are so dark and are so painful, it has always felt from the beginning like it's almost an ethical responsibility to, when I'm using artists to interrogate those subjects, at least use people whose work I genuinely love. I think because I'm often talking about difficult elements of their lives, because I'm picking out things from their biographies and because I'm using their work to really look at quite difficult stuff, it feels like the balancing act of that needs to be some sort of, again, authentic is a difficult word, but some sort of authentic commitment to what they're doing. Really, I care about it. I think it's really valuable. Um, so that's kind of what's behind that tone. It's not just that I'm interested in going, I love this work, I love this work. I'm using it. And that that feels like the relationship that needs to be there for me to be able to do that. Um, and also, often, I mean, not always in funny weather, but often the people that I'm writing about 
haven't had their dues. They've been outside of the sort of gallery system. And again, it's felt like I've wanted to introduce them to a larger culture rather than savage figures who are already lauded in the larger culture. That's felt like what my role has been. So, yeah, I think love is love is an important part of what I do. Yeah, I mean, it, it does feel like it, it can be, it, it is a critical position to say, you know, as opposed to espousing any kind of negative position, you actually just say my 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 critical decisions are manifest in the, in, in the people I decide to write about in the positive, right? That omission becomes a form of saying, well, I don't, not necessarily these people are unimportant, but I'm, I'm deciding not to write about certain things because yeah. I'm privileging others. And, uh, yeah. and that, if, if I could kind of characterize your critical method, as it were, I think it would be more along those lines. Yeah. And I think there is a sense of alternative canon formation with, with this book in particular, that there is a sense of, well, these are artists of the 20th century that I think are, are in the first rank often and haven't necessarily been put in the first rank for whatever reason. And Derek Jarman is such a good example of that this sort of extraordinary artist, polymath, writer, filmmaker, et cetera, et cetera, who only now really is getting the sort of retrospectives that he should have had a long time ago. And we, we know the reason for that. We know the reason for that is homophobia. And we know the reason for that is a very British dislike of people who move out of their categories, who try and do multiple things, who work in too many ways. And to, to the British sensibility, that seems sort of dilettantish and somehow almost reprehensible. And I think... That's the kind of art I'm, I'm often very drawn to. So it, it's felt political to say, let's look at this life again. Let's look at this work again. Yeah. It, it, one other sort of undertone I, I feel in the book, if, if there is a, you know, a, a critical angle, I think it's, it comes out most in the Berger essay, but is a kind of deep and ongoing suspicion about the effects of capitalism and consumerism. And certainly in the future of loneliness, you have it as well. And I'm, I'm curious if, you know, if that's something that you're sort of, clearly something that you're engaged with, but how it fits into the artist that you you look at? That's a really good question. I think a lot of a lot of the people that I've been drawn to or ha have chosen to collect in this book are people who have chosen in some ways alternate ways of living. And that's part again of what's been the interest in the life is even people like George O'Keefe, who as an artist, I'm not terribly excited by. But as I wrote that piece, which I've been commissioned to write, I was very excited and almost moved by the decisions that she'd made, the risks that she'd taken in terms of building a life in which she could be an artist. The sort of sacrifices that involved in terms of conventional domestic or romantic lives and the sort of um, stringencies, the sort of discipline and that sense of making something for yourself, making a life with your own hands, it draws me very deeply. I mean, I, I did live like that in my 20s. And that feels like some sense of, I don't know if you want to formally designate it anti-capitalist, but it feels like it's running on a different set of motivations than the eternal pursuit of profit. It's something different. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. It's it's it. In America, it's almost come to feel like art is becoming this this sort of strange last stand, and I also think that's why it's so being so aggressively co opted by um, by sort of ancillary industries, whether it's fashion or something else, right? That there's this sort of co opting of artists and artists' lives and the idea of the artist, um, and and you know technology does it too. 
um, to market itself. Uh, and and it, it feels like in a funny way, taking a clear stand is, it's never been a better time to do that. <laughs> and also the absolute impossibility of the art world to take a clear stand because of the entanglements. And they're not just present, they're historical. There's this wonderful bit in Zabel's Rings of Saturn that I was just reading where he talks, feels so relevant now. He's talking about the relationship of 18th century art to sugar and this sense, the sugar, the sugar trade, and this sense that art has always been the process of purification of money and he says that it's almost as if there's a fine lacquer of sugar over every painting in every gallery and I just found that so sort of (laughs) compelling and sinister you know these beautiful paintings that we love and at the same time they are never separate from the world of commerce they're never separate from the world of trade those things are absolutely inextricably entangled but we can look at the entanglements we can look with clarity and art can be a tool for doing that looking yeah, in a funny way, because yeah, because it's a simpler um, marketplace than the uh, than the more complex commodity exchange places. I think in a, you know in a funny way, a layperson might have better purchase on how that how those entanglements exist because they're, they're, it's just so explicit in some cases. Um, speaking of Zebald, sort of how do you fit reading into your practice? How do you see the interplay now that you're writing less about books of of books in your practice? The deep source material from which everything else emerges, I think, and especially in the last couple of years as I've retreated from social media and especially Twitter, that 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 was a period where I felt as if I'd lost my concentration span entirely and all of the news and information I was getting was through those sort of wormholes of hyperlinks. And I really consciously drew back and decided that I wanted to return to reading history, reading the history of art, reading books that traced connections more deeply and returning to the novel as well, reading Dickens, coming back to this sort of sense of this majestic art form that we seem on the verge of throwing out, which is to write a book, to to be able to fully trace out an idea, to be able to slow time, to be able to speed up time, to be able to fall through centuries, to be able to live inside a second almost forever. That that knack of writing, I think no other art form really can capture that. And I'm still in love with it, definitely. Yeah. Can, let's talk about uh, Twitter just for a second, only because, uh, to, to be totally honest, I'm I've been quite removed from all of that. Mm. Um, but so much of what is happening right now seems like it's playing out there that I, I he- I'm hearing more about it. I'd love to just hear about your experiences here, which you describe uh, in 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 some of the essays, in particular the, the the loneliness piece collected in Funny Weather. What was that relationship like, and how did you pull back from it? Like, how did you go all the way in, and then how did you pull back? <laughs> Um, I think loneliness actually had a lot to do with it. That that lonely city period, it, I was very enraptured by the possibilities of the internet. And obviously, the the main thing is that it, it collapses space. You can be in contact with anybody at any time, and you have an unlimited supply of information. And that feels very captivating, feels very beguiling. You can be having conversations, you can be watching not just the news arriving, but almost the news being formed. So that's wonderful. But at the same time, I think, especially after Trump came to power and that that Brexit period in Britain, the sense of paranoia clouding the network came across very strongly. And I felt like all I was doing was reading 
conspiracy theories, possibilities, this sense of needing all the time to unveil the connections between things as if that in itself would change things. And I started thinking, this isn't how change happens. We need the knowledge, we need the information, but that is only one part of it. And this is what I was talking about in the introduction to Funny Weather about these two competing motives, paranoia and repair, that these are two ways of reading the world, making sense of information. And the reparative principle is also incredibly important, I think, especially right now, the ability to stop looking for the links between things and start thinking about what world you want to live in and how you build it. And actually, I I think discourse on the internet is changing very fast right now, because I think those sort of conversations are starting to happen much more. It feels like a shifting moment. But at the same time, it was it's receiving a kind of information that for me personally was too fast and always on the surface as if you're running along the surface of a breaking wave. And I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to go downward to follow the roots of things, to make sense of things in a in a different way. You talk about, you know, I think quite explicitly in the Frank O'Hara section, but that permeates a lot of these essays is, is the question of bearing witness. I think you call it an act of love. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like Frank O'Hara, I'm a lapsed Catholic. I think those sort of responsibilities live live heavily. Um and it does seem to me that it, it comes up with Philip Guston a lot too, the, this sort of obsession with the duty of the artist to bear witness. And I, I don't like talk of duties, but at the same time, we are alive in the world, we are alive to the world. And I do think that part of our role as artists is to bear witness to our times. And the the, the act of bearing witness as an act of love was to do with... Um, Larry River's address at Frank O'Hara's funeral, where people were really like, they were getting up and they were walking out of the room. They were horrified and disgusted because he was describing in sort of forensic detail what Frank O'Hara's body looked like at, hospital, his, right? at his death in the hospital, yeah, after he'd been hit by, hit by a beach taxi in Fire Island. And there's something devoted about that as well. There's something about saying this, this is how it is. Let's look at how it is rather than sort of escaping into aestheticizing, let's look at how it is and then see where we can go from there. And I think that's that's the kind of art I'm drawn to and that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to do with writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction essays or larger works. That's that seems to be an underlying principle. To sort of pull from from Frank O'Hara, there 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 feel like there are certain characters that crop up again and again when one reads this collection in its entirety. Um I'm curious about how those, let's call them love relationships or attachments, take shape for you and, and maybe who some of the other characters are uh, with, with whom you've, you've developed, you feel those kinds of connections. I mean, David Wonorovich is certainly central among them. He was, he was such a large part of The Lonely City and I think there's probably only one essay on him in Funny Weather, but that's only because I made myself not write sure. more. <laughs> but it can... It, it feels to me like some artists have a sort of richness and depth of practice that I can continually revisit. Um, and I suppose that it, it runs along tracks that feel like I can continually draw from as well, that they're thinking about things that I continue to think about. Um, or they, they sort of traffic in a kind of image that remains enigmatic and compelling. You know, some people you write about and you feel like, okay, I got to the bottom of that. I get that. 
And some people stay mysterious to you, I think. They, it feels like there is more to draw on. And, you know, I'm I'm writing from discipline to discipline. I'm writing from the world of the word across to the world of the image. And it requires a particular kind of image. For me, I require a particular kind of image that feels that it has some sense of mystery so that there's almost a gap I'm trying to jump across. It, it needs to feel in some way hidden from me. And so those are the artists that I come back to again and again, where I feel like I haven't quite, I haven't quite got to the bottom. Do you ever form those attachments with literary characters? In it, meaning, or any kind of fictional character, I should say. I mean, Zebald, I feel that that's somebody where I feel like I haven't got to the bottom of it. Virginia Woolf is a huge touchstone in, in my writing and in her nonfiction and her fiction. Jane Austen, I'm pretty fascinated by Jane Austen. No, so there are all kinds of, there are all kinds of figures and it, it isn't necessarily just about their life. It isn't necessarily just about their style. I think it's also that there are works that sort of vibrate on a frequency for me where I feel very attracted to it. But they, it's not always visible from the beginning. For example, Andy Warhol, who I've written a huge amount about over the years, is an artist that I thought was utterly superficial and of no interest at all. And it really took quite a long time. It wasn't until I saw the Alice Neal painting of his scarred torso that I suddenly thought there's more here than than I've seen. And so, you know, that's a different artist acting as a gateway. Warhol's such an interesting example for you because in some ways it, it could be said to stand for so many of the things that the undercurrents of this book would militate against or shake against. But of course, it, there's such depth and richness there. How did that transformation happen after you saw that Alice Neal portrait? I think the sense of Warhol as a damaged body really changes, really changes everything. This is kind of the tack I took in The Lonely City, and it was very much the tack of Donna's Warhol show at the at the Whitney as well, Don Salvo's Warhol show, which was so extraordinary and revelatory. This sense of him as a working class person, as an immigrant, as a queer person, as an injured person, as a sickly person, the work starts to kind of acquire a different sort of tone. And the idea of him, well, authenticity is such an interesting word to put up against Warhol, because in some ways he's so superficial, he's so glib, he's so open in his desire for money, for bringing home the bacon. And at the same time, there is something sort of shy and authentic and sincere about him. Those those early drawings, the blotted line drawings of James Dean, I mean, the longing comes off them in waves. They're almost embarrassing to look at because they feel so, you're blushing. Um, so it, the complexity of Warhol is what really attracts me and he's another artist who I feel like you can't you can't get to the bottom of Warhol. I agree. I have to say I really enjoyed reading reading the book. I mean it really feels like a book for our time and we didn't talk about you know the the, the prose itself but it's it's wonderful. I mean it, it really brings life to to these artists and and to these objects and that's of course in itself an incredible feat. So Olivia thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, it, it was so great speaking with you. Thank you Lucas it's been an absolute pleasure. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.